For those of you who have been around Woodmont for a while, you know that I think of the new year as a great time to reset, uh, refocus, and, uh, and reprioritize uh, in life. It's a good opportunity for us to uh, look at our lives. Uh, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Aristotle said, the goal is not to be superior to other people. The goal is to be superior to your former self. And so I want to give you two questions to begin this morning. And I'll give you my answers to the questions, but I want you to think about these in your own life. What is one thing that you learned in 2019, either because of something that you went through or just something that you learned in in general? And for me, between uh, my daughter uh, getting diagnosed with diabetes and the loss of uh, close friends, I learned that we should never take our children's health or our family and friends for granted, period. And yet we often do that. The second question that I will put out there is what are two focuses that you have for this new year, 2020? Maybe not necessarily resolutions because we know that those tend to get broken, but what are two general goals or focuses that you have for this new year? And so again, I'll answer. I would like to try in 2020 to be more positive than negative, to focus on what's good rather than what's bad or not good. And the second focus might sound just like something a preacher would say, but I would like to try to be more Christ-like. And we know that that's the goal that we should have as Christians, but it's also not always easy. Uh, Christ-like in our words, Christ-like in our actions. And that's one reason why next Sunday we're going to dive in uh, to the Gospel of John. Uh, I mentioned the spiritual formation classes. They begin this Wednesday night. Uh, We'd love to have you join us, 615. At Woodmont in 2020, we are going to have four focus areas, and I'll name them this morning. It's inviting, connecting, growing, and serving. Inviting others to be a part of our family of faith, uh, connecting through life groups and Sunday school classes with other Christians, growing deeper in our faith and in our friendships, and then serving using our gifts to serve this church and to serve this community. Now today I'm going to continue a a 12-year tradition. I've done this the first Sunday of the new year, every year since coming to Woodmont, and that is I am going to share my core beliefs with you, and yet at the same time I'm going to ask you to think about your own core beliefs, and maybe you can take my list and, and add to it or take my list and swap some things out, But this is what I I want to challenge you to do this morning. What do you believe and why do you believe it? In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a, a metaphor where he talks about two different builders. He says, the first builder uh, built his house on shifting sand. And when the storms of life came and the winds blew and the floods came up and it beat against the house, He says it fell because the foundation was shifting sand. But then he said there's this other builder who built his house, his life, on solid rock. And when the storms of life came, the rain fell, the floods beat against it, the wind blew, that house did not fall because it was founded, it was built on solid rock. And so Jesus says very explicitly, whoever hears these words of mine, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, And acts on them will be like the wise man who builds his house on rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on sand. 
So as we begin 2020, I'm asking you, what is the foundation upon which you're building your life? What are your core beliefs, values, and convictions? What is most important to you? What are you committed to? What are you putting in place that will help you withstand the storms of life? I used to say if, but I mean now when they come, because they will come. Everybody has to go through something uh, that is like a storm. I heard somebody say you're either going into a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. And I think that that's probably true. But what are you putting into place to make sure you can withstand the storms of life when they come? These are my core beliefs, and I want you to think about your own. First and foremost, I believe in God. The Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, as it says in the Apostles' Creed, I've always believed in God, and I always will believe in God. Now, does that mean that there have never been times in my life when I have, have doubted God or questioned God or been frustrated with God? Absolutely not. We all go through times in life when we don't understand why certain things have to happen and why we have to go through uh, certain situations. It's a part of being human. It's a part of being honest. It's a part of struggling with the things that life throws our way. We go through times when we get angry with God. We get upset with God. But as we grow older, hopefully we can continue to grow in our understanding of God and who God is. Uh, Harold Kushner, the great rabbi, once said, you know, God is not just a man who lives in the sky. Uh, the great Riverside Church preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick, when somebody would come up to him and said, Dr. Fosdick, I don't think that, that I believe in God. I, I think I have too many issues with, with God. He would say, well, tell me about the God that, that you believe in. And the person would tell him and he'd say, you know, I don't think that I believe in that kind of God either. A master puppeteer. Uh, inflicting pain on some people, but not on others. As we grow older, we must move to a much deeper understanding of God and who God is. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that when people stop believing in God, it's not that they believe in nothing. It's that, that they believe in anything and everything. And you remember what Frederick Nietzsche said? He said, at one time in the future in Western culture, people are going to replace God with money. And for many people, that's true. They, they trust and they worship God or money more than they worship God. And so Nietzsche's prediction for a lot of people has, has panned out. I believe in a God of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness as revealed to us through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I believe in a God that is the eternal home of the human soul. And St. Augustine was right when he said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I believe that God is a mystery and we will spend our entire lives seeking to discover truths about the nature of God. That is why theology is a lifelong endeavor and it involves living with a sense of humility. The prophet Micah says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God? Our search for God is always a search that keeps us humble. And if anybody pretends or tells you that they have everything figured out about God, you need to beware about that. Now, I don't just believe in a God who is up there, out there somewhere, but a God who is everywhere, including right here, right now. The Bible says in Acts 17 that it's in God that we live and move and have our being. There's no place where we can go where God isn't because God is like the air we breathe. God is within us. God is all around us. Um, picture this, last weekend we went to Swanee to get a break after the Christmas uh, uh, push, 
And so we, we took our kids up there, and on one of the days that it was raining, we went down to Chattanooga to go to the aquarium. My older kids had been to the aquarium, but Wade had not been to the aquarium. We thought he's three and a half. You know, he'll really like this. And so we're walking through the aquarium, up and down the ramps, and you can, like, see the fish, and they're above you, and you know, there's a guy that's in a wetsuit diving, and he's waving to you. But I was thinking about it, you know, the fish being in the water is kind of like us being in God. God is all around us. And yet sometimes we, 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 we try to put God in a box and just think of God as just being out there. Next, because I believe in God, I also believe in love. First John says that God is love and those who love are born of God and know God. And those who do not love do not know God for God is love. Uh, I believe that our world needs more love. Because love holds everything together in life. Love is the force that gets us through the most difficult situations in life. Human beings are capable of doing and saying some pretty terrible things to each other. We hurt each other. We can cut each other deep. And so we need to be constantly reminded that God is calling us to love each other and not to hurt each other. God is calling us to build each other up and not to tear each other down. And so part of learning to love means that we have to learn to overcome fear. The Bible says fear is the main reason that we don't love enough. There's too much fear in this world. And love is the only thing that can drive out fear. Jesus taught about what he called agape love, which uh, the definition I've always liked is unconquerable goodwill towards other people. I told you during Advent that I don't understand people who wish ill will upon other people. I've never understood that. Um, unconquerable goodwill towards other people, wanting the best for other people. It means loving those who have hurt you in the past. It means loving those who might be very difficult to love at times. And I think that forgiveness is a part of this. We can't just say as Christians that we believe in forgiveness if we're not willing to practice forgiveness. And until we learn how to love other people, and I mean all kinds of people, we are not really alive. We're just existing and going through the motions. And we're certainly not experiencing the fullness of life that God wants us to have. You know, Paul says this about love. Paul says, love is patient and love is kind. And it's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It, it bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things and it endures all things. Paul says love never ends. But yet if we thought about it, there have been times in our lives when we, we've, we've come to believe that maybe love has ended or maybe we feel like we can't love the way that we're being called to by Christ. The single greatest challenge in life is to learn how to love. Love God, love our neighbor, and love ourselves. Not in some weird way, but in a healthy way. There's a lot of people in the culture that really love themselves and just get on social media and you can find out about that, right? But to love ourselves so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Next, as a minister in the Reformed tradition, Justin Gung and I went to Princeton Seminary. That's where we first met. Uh, our theology is heavily influenced by Karl Barth, who's basically a part of the Trinity up there, uh, John Calvin, Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Lord and Savior. And I wholeheartedly believe that in Jesus Christ, God brings forgiveness and liberation, reconciliation and new life into a broken world. Being a Christian means much more than just believing in Jesus Christ, though. Uh, that knowledge of Christ 
has to not just be historical knowledge or academic knowledge. It must be what we call faith knowledge, which means we need to know Christ on a personal level. And Christ must change our lives on a regular basis. He must challenge us and inspire us. If we want to become more like Christ, then we have to work to develop the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the, the virtues of what that we can exhibit once we know Christ and follow Christ. And so maybe there's one or two of those that you need to work on in 2020. Pick them. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's self-control. Maybe it's joy. Write them on an index card. Put it on your mirror, in your car, at your office, and then focus on it. Think about it. Next, because I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the local church, which is the community of believers. And I believe with all my heart that the church is called to be missional. The church is called to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world and in the community. The church is not just a place or a building. I mean, we have a beautiful building here at Woodmont, and we're adding to it this year. But the church is made up of people. It's you and it's me. It's those who are worshiping in Jordan Hall, the contemporary service, those who are at the 930 service. It's the people that make up the church. We are the church, not the place that we go. The church is made up of people. My grandfather, who started a church in Fort Lauderdale, which is where my dad grew up, pastored it for many years, and then my uncle is now the minister there. He used to say that, that, that the church brings us lifelong friendships of the very best kind. And I always just took him at his word until I was old enough to experience it on my own, and I know that he was telling the truth. That some of the best friends that you'll make in life, not the only friends, but the best friends you'll make in life, come through the church and are found in the church. And it's always been clear that there is a direct correlation between one's active involvement in the church and one's mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. And research has proven this. I don't just make this up. Marriages are stronger among couples who are actively involved in the church. Families are closer when the entire family is involved in the church. The rates of divorce and depression and suicide are much lower for those who are actively involved in the church. This has been studied and proven. Now, guess what? The church is not perfect. Why? Because it's led and made up of people who aren't perfect. Um, if you want to find something to complain about about the church, just come see me. I'll give you my list. There's all kinds of things that you can complain about in the church. The church is not perfect because it's led by imperfect people. But we journey together. We love each other even when we disagree. And we should learn to put the church and our faith in God before anything else in life. Human beings are hardwired to worship. And if we don't worship God on a regular basis, then we'll find something to worship. Make no mistake about that. Next, as Christians, I believe in the Bible, which is God's word, which gives us the foundation and wisdom for our lives. Now, every year I say this clearly. I do not worship the Bible. I worship God. I'm not a fundamentalist because academically I see some glaring inconsistencies with that particular approach to Scripture. However, I don't just believe in throwing Scripture out whenever it's not convenient. We have to wrestle with the text. It's through the Bible that we come to know God and Jesus Christ the best. 
There's a guy named Stephen Prothrow who has kind of surveyed uh, religion and culture for many years. He teaches in Boston. But he wrote this book called Religious Literacy where he says, many Christians in our country say that they believe in the Bible, yet we don't bother to take the time to read and study the Bible. And so he makes this profound point. He says, for a book that is so important to so many people, the Bible is not read and studied enough. It remains a mystery for many. It sits on a shelf with a bunch of dust. It's never picked up. That's why we're going to dive into John's gospel next week. We need to study the scriptures and make sure that we know them. Here's some statistics that George Barna released not too long ago. 91% of U.S. households own a Bible. In 2015, 33% read the Bible outside of church, so away from Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, which was down from 47% just five years earlier in 2010. I would hate to see the statistic for 2020. Only 20% of adults have read the Bible from cover to cover. And 45% of adults say that they are extremely or moderately knowledgeable of the Bible. So clearly we are in a culture where Bible knowledge and Bible study has been on the decline. And this is a problem if we believe that the Bible is God's word and contains God's truth for our lives. Uh, I think Karl Barth was right when he said we should approach every new day with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, and we should look at what's going on in the world and see what the Bible has to say about the events that are happening in our world. Uh, a longtime Sunday school teacher at my dad's church in Memphis, where I grew up, once said, if you will carry the Bible when you are young, then the Bible will carry you when you get old. Meaning that if you come to learn and know those amazing passages of Scripture, that later on in life, they will be there for you because you will live them and experience them. Next, and certainly of the utmost importance, I believe in the power of prayer, which includes confession and forgiveness. See, for us as Christians, prayer is the means through which we communicate with God. And at Christmas time, we talked a little bit about how important it is to listen. Sometimes we just talk and make requests to God, but what does it look like to actually listen to God, to listen to what God has to say to us? You know, prayer is a mystery. We don't understand exactly how it works, but what we do know is that when we pray, it makes a difference in our lives and it makes a difference in the lives of those around us. And so I've always said it doesn't really matter uh, when you pray or where you pray or how you pray or what you say when you pray. When you pray. What matters is that you pray and that you do it on a regular basis. And if you don't know how to, how to get started, then use the prayer that Jesus gave us, the Lord's Prayer, the one we find in the Gospels. Use that as your prayer and then build on that. But the real secret of the power of prayer is to not see it as just a means of escaping uh, hard situations or difficulties, but to see it as a way of drawing strength and asking for God's help in dealing with things that we cannot face on our own. And all of us have been through things in life where we realized we could not face it on our own. We needed God's help. We needed the support of the community. Next, I believe in marriage, home, and family life. Uh, I have a nine-year-old daughter, a seven-year-old son, and a three-year-old son at my house. Uh, life is busy uh, for Megan and me. And family life is not easy, but it's so important. Um, it matters. Home and family life is the greatest source of love, support, and joy in the world, but not everybody experiences this. The quality of one's home and family life is one of the most important factors in determining 
uh, your the faith and outlook on the world. And I'm convinced that children who grow up and are born into healthy and happy homes, they grow up speaking love as their native language. And every family has issues and problems. Uh, yours probably surfaced over the holidays, right? That doesn't make your family unique because every single family has drama and struggles and things that they have to work through. Uh, it's just universal. But real family is where you are loved and cared for and where you can go and feel welcome no matter what. And, and it's sad that so many people in our culture never get to experience that for whatever reason. And then if, if, if things happen, something happens to your family or you go through a, a divorce, your marriage falls apart, then the church is here to support you. This Wednesday night, there's a new, uh, there's a new divorce care class that, that starts with uh, Ann and Janet and they do a great job of letting people know this is a hard time, but you're going to get through it, and you're not going to have to go through it alone. The church needs to be there to support people, not have people feel like they need to be embarrassed or stay away, because uh, that happens in life, and we need to love people uh, because they've already been kicked and hurt and, and wounded enough. As someone who believes that faith should be able to withstand the test of mind, heart, and circumstance, I believe in free will and the consequences of it. Frederick Buechner, who's one of my favorite authors, says it this way. The greatest single argument against the existence of God is the presence of evil in the world. This argument is simply stated. If there is a God who is both good and all-powerful, then why do terrible things happen in the world? And then Buechner gives his answer. God wants us related to him in the same way that children are related to their parents. In other words, God wants us to love him. And if our love is to be spontaneous and real, then we must be free to not love him with all of its grim consequences of human suffering. Evil exists in the world, not because God is indifferent or powerless or absent, but because humans are free. And free we must be if we are to love freely. And free we must be if we are to be human. Love is not controlling. You know, out of love, God has given every single one of us free will. We get to participate in this unfolding narrative that we call life. And God hopes that we will choose faith and love, but the choice is always ours to make. Lastly, this morning, I believe in life after death. Death will always be a great mystery to those of us who are on this side of it. But I believe that life goes on beyond the grave because of the words of Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And I'm convinced that somehow we will one day be reunited with the people that we have loved and lost on this earth. And there were people sitting in this sanctuary and sitting down at the bridge last January hearing this sermon on core beliefs who were no longer with us. They've moved on uh, to the other side of death. And I believe that we will see them again even though we don't know exactly what that will look like or what that will feel like. But I look forward to seeing my mother again. Look forward to seeing friends that I have lost. I look forward to, to seeing Elizabeth Region again and, and uh, Melissa Waddy. And I could go down the list because every year we lose folks in this church. But I believe in life after death because of the words of Jesus. So these are my basic beliefs. These are the beliefs upon which I have tried and I'm still trying to build my life, my ministry, and my family. Uh, these beliefs are the rock and the foundation. And so as we begin 2020, I'm asking you, what are your beliefs? What are you convicted about? And are you living a life 
that is consistent with those beliefs? Are you living a life where you make those beliefs a priority and where your, your time and your energy and your resources align with those beliefs? If you can do this, then when the storms of life come, whatever form that takes, then you will have built a strong foundation like the builder in Matthew's gospel to withstand the storms of life, to stand strong in the storms of life, and to hold firm to the things that you know are most important. So in the words of a poet, until the sun grows cold and the stars grow old and the leaves of the judgment book unfold, this, my friends, is what I believe. Amen.